Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to Grace Crossing Church. Welcome back all of our regulars. Uh, those that are newcomers here, we want to welcome you. Thank you for coming so much this morning. You dropped in the middle of a series that we're in entitled Money Talks. We come to installment number three this morning. Before we jump into our talk, I want to give you a few disclaimers. The first disclaimer, those of you that have been with us already for this uh, series the first couple of weeks know this, but let me say it anyway. We are not doing this series because we want something from you. We are doing this series because we want something for you. We are doing this series because we want every person here to experience God's peace in every level and every area of their life, including their finances, which often are the least peaceful and most stressful. Second disclaimer, we are not doing this series because we want to raise money for our church. Rather, we are doing this series because we want to raise our awareness of what the Bible has to say about wealth acquisition and wealth management. And the Bible has a great deal to say about the subject. In fact, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with money, wealth, and the way that we steward our possessions and our treasures. And that's what we want to focus on, and that's what we've been dealing with these last several weeks. The third disclaimer this morning is that this series allows us to answer one of the most fundamental questions in life. And one of the most fundamental questions in life is this, in what, or more importantly, in whom do I place my trust? Money, more than anything else, exposes and reveals our values. It points to our priorities. It actually exposes our securities and or our insecurities, as many of us may be feeling right now with the government shutdown. Money points more than anything else in life to the object of our trust. And it actually is two-sided. It answers the question, in what and whom do we place our trust, and then can God trust us with our wealth? Because if we can't trust God with our earthly wealth, then how will God ever trust us with eternal wealth. So in this series, we're answering that big trust question. The final disclaimer that I want to share with you this morning as we launch into our third week is actually more of a confession. And it's a confession that may surprise some of you here this morning. Here's the confession. It is much easier for you to listen to me talk about money than it is for me to talk about money. Of all of the subjects that I have preached on through the years of my life, this is the most difficult, this is the most sensitive for me. There's a lot of reasons for that, Uh, not the least of which is my family of origin. You see, I grew up in a home where my dad um, abandoned his marriage vows, and he actually abandoned his family when I was only five years old. He left my mom with five children ages nine through three. My mom had no education beyond high school. And what what happened when he left was he sent her into an emotional breakdown. She had a nervous breakdown, not just one, but multiple. She could not take care of her five kids. 
And so she went on government assistance. I was raised in relative poverty. I was raised on food stamps. I plenty of times was the kid that walked down to the truck when it came to town to drop off the cheese and the bread and the milk. I hated being the poor kid at the end of the street. When I walked into the lunchroom every day at school, I was overwhelmed with embarrassment because I had to pull out my lunch card that kids got who got free lunches. And I had to have that lunch card punched by the lunch lady. You have no idea, unless you've experienced just how embarrassing that feels. Every single day, I dreaded going to school. My dad never paid a dime of child support which is the reason I learned that he left the state of Pennsylvania because he wanted to avoid arrest. So I never saw my dad again. I had no relationship with my dad, no correspondence with my dad. There were no birthday cards. There were no celebrations, nothing from my dad until I turned 18. And when I turned 18, I actually reconnected with my father because now there was nothing he was obligated to pay. And at the age of 18, we reconnected and we began to reestablish a relationship. And as a young adult, here's what I learned about my dad. My dad did not leave my family for another woman. Now, she was a part of the story and the narrative, but that's not the reason he left. What I discovered is that my dad left my family and abandoned us because there was something else he loved so much more. See, my dad had a desire and a goal and a dream. And that dream was that he wanted to be a wealthy millionaire by his mid-30s, and his family was getting in the way. I grew up believing that money was bad, that money was somehow evil and wrong, but you'll be glad to know this morning that the Bible nowhere teaches that money is bad or money is evil. Here's actually what the Bible does teach us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 10. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people craving money have wandered from true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. The emphasis of this verse is not on the amount of money that we possess but the degree to which money possesses us. In fact, it's an interesting word that we have here in this scripture, this word evil. It actually comes from first century Greek culture, and it refers in first century Greek culture to spoiled or rotten food. So I want you to think right now, sour milk. Get that smell, the stench in your nostrils. That's what the word implies. It's talking about behaviors and actions that flow from character that has become corrupt. And what the Bible here is suggesting is not what money, what we do with our money, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not what we do with our money. The most important thing is what money does with us and what happens inside of us because of it. And so the Bible here clearly says that every evil has a root. Now here's what's important to know. If you want to change the character or the nature of a tree, a fruit tree for instance, 
you don't simply hang new fruit on the tree. You've got to uproot the tree. You've got to do something to the root system because the fruit will always come directly from the roots. And what the Bible here is suggesting is that in our lives, in all of our lives, there is a root system. And that root system is significant. Because everything that flows out of our life, all of the fruit we bear, all of the actions, all of the behaviors, our minds, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, everything flows from a foundational root system that no one can see but God. And the Bible here does not say it is a root. The Bible here says it's the root. What is the root of all kinds of evil? The root is not money. Read what it says. The root of all evil is love. It's love. So let me say this this morning. And I believe this. I'm convicted by this. All evil comes and is the fruit of something that we love more than God. Evil flows and is the fruit of something that we love more than God. So nowhere does the Bible teach us, nowhere does the Bible say that money leads us to sin. But what the Bible does suggest at multiple places is that money can lead us away from God. It can lead us in a direction in our lives that is not good, not healthy, not godly, and will not produce for us what we believe it will. It is an illusion. So let me say something this morning that at first earshot you may not agree with, but I believe wholeheartedly. No one has ever walked away from their family because of wealth. My dad did not leave our home because of wealth. In fact, I'll say this. No one has ever turned their back on their faith or walked away from God because of wealth. But every single day, people deny God, reject their faith, and go in a direction because they love something more than God. And in this case, the root system, the Bible clearly says, is our love for wealth. It has a way more than anything else to move us in a direction that is not healthy. It gets our hearts attached to things that God never wanted our hearts to be attached to. So I love the way the living Bible translation says this in 1 Timothy 6.10. Let's go to that next slide. The love of money is the first step toward all kinds of sin. Some people have even turned away from God because of their love for it. So let me take you back to school one more time this morning. Here's the multiple choice question that we've been entertaining in this series. Some of you already know the answer to it, but here it is. There are four ways that we can view God and that we can view money. The first way and the first view of money is my money, my way. The second view of money is my money, God's way. The third view is God's money belongs to him, but we're going to handle it my way. And the final view is God's money, God's way. And guess what? There's only one right answer on the test. There's only one that will actually pass 
And that particular answer is number four. So the question this morning, it begs, is this. How does God view money? And how should we view money? Well, I said it just a moment ago, but it's not just our view of money. It's also our view of God. Because I would submit to us this morning that we cannot have an accurate view of our wealth and our possessions without having an accurate view of God first. Until we see God correctly, we cannot look at possessions, wealth, and treasures correctly. So how does God see money? How does God see wealth? Well, I think there are three ways. Number one, I think God sees money as a tool. It is a tool to meet your needs. It is a tool to care for the poor. It is a tool to advance the cause of Jesus Christ here on the earth. Your money, my money, is a tool first and foremost. The second thing I think the scripture clearly says is that and teaches that God sees money as a test. All through scripture, these stories that are told, these parables that we find are teaching us and telling us that our wealth and our possessions are really a test. God wants to test our allegiance. Where are our hearts? Have you ever wondered why Jesus chose Judas of the 12 to make the treasurer of his organization? And Judas is the one who betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Why would Jesus put Judas in charge of the money? Because he wanted to test him. You and I can view our money as a test from God. God is asking us, do you really trust me? Do you really love me? Will you really put me first in every area of your life? So it is a tool. It is a test. And thirdly, God sees it as a testimony. Our money can become a tremendous testimony that actually draws people's attention and shines the spotlight of the focus away from us and onto God. It can also serve as a testimony of shining the light on us and drawing attention to us. The choice is up to us. So here's been the big idea for this entire series. Jesus talked money because money talks. Jesus talked money because money talks. And so in this third installment of Money Talks, I want to take us to another one of Jesus' stories that he tells us. It's another money talk that is designed to teach us some tremendous principles when it comes to how we steward, how we handle our wealth and our possessions. The story actually is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Let's set it up by reading verses 13 through 15 because this will show us why Jesus tells the story. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide with me the property our father left us. So imagine this. Jesus is walking down the street. There is a crowd of people lining both sides of the street. And here is this guy that jumps out and says, Jesus, my brother's not treating me right. He's not being fair to me. My dad died, he's given the inheritance, he's the older brother, but he owes me a portion of it. Tell him to give me some of it. Tell him to share the estate 
Jesus says in response, who who said that I should judge or decide between you? Then Jesus said, be careful. Notice these words, be careful. And guard against all kinds of evil and all kinds of greed. Now listen, money is not the only greed thing. Greed is more than a money thing. There can be all kinds of greed. We can have greed with our time. We can have greed with our energy. We can have a greed for attention. We can have a greed for accolation. We can have a greed for the praise of other people. There are so many things that can drive us that we can become greedy about. But the, but the greatest thing and the number one greed in all of our lives, according to Scripture, has to do with our wells, our wealth. And so Jesus says, be careful. Guard against all kinds of greed. And then notice what he says. Life is not measured by how much one owns. What is it Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that your value is not measured by your valuables. And Jesus is saying that your true worth is not determined by your net worth. You have a value and a worth that goes beyond your valuables and goes beyond what's on the net worth on your income statement. Then Jesus tells this tremendous parable. He gives us this money talk because he wanted to speak to our hearts. And here's the money talk, verses 16 through 20. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all of my crops. And he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and all my other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now, take it easy. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night then who will get everything that you have worked for? This parable really is an illustration of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. The entire book of Ecclesiastes basically tells us that we are all striving for something that's really like chasing after the wind. That at the end of the day, it's elusive. It is an illusion It will not satisfy, it will not produce what we think it will. And Jesus here actually is telling us three very important things. He's he's sending to us in this money talk three profound messages. Here's the first. Economic security does not guarantee eternal security. That's the first message of the story Jesus tells us. Economic security does not guarantee eternal security. According to Jesus, that's the great deception, isn't it? That if we can accumulate enough, that if we can get our bank accounts high enough, that if we can get our investments strong enough, we can just simply be guaranteed 
that everything will be taken care of. And that's, that's simply the deception. That money and wealth acquisition has a way of making us believe that we are better off than we really are. So it's that time of year where, if you're like me, I never look at my retirement or my investment accounts. I don't even want to know what's happening with them. But it's the time of year where we're all getting our annual statements. And so we're opening these annual statements, looking at them, and and it's a tremendous thing, isn't it, when you look at them and you see the kind of year that we've had with the soaring stock market, and then you look at your accounts and you go, wow, I've done pretty well for myself. It has a way of lulling us and making us believe that there is something that we can just simply get comfortable with if we simply keep making the right financial investments. And it's the great deception. Money actually is the great deception. According to the magazine that shamelessly says what it's all about, Money Magazine, can you guess what the number one obsession is of Americans? Not a trick question. It's wealth. Money Magazine. They know it. We all know it. Because Americans have reached what now is called a new level of social consciousness that is called transcendental acquisition. The idea is that we have accumulated so much and so much more that we are getting to the place where we're feeling this sense of deep abiding security. And I would submit to you this morning that the number one drug of Americans is not cannabis even if it's legalized, and and it's not opioids. The number one drug is wealth. I want you to think this morning of wealth as a gateway drug. According to what the Bible teaches, it's a gateway drug into all other moral ills. It is that and our love of it that leads us to things and leads our heart to places that God never intended them to go. So let me illustrate. When I was 18 years old, all the way back in 19, the last uh, millennial, um, I was actually working, and I know this will surprise you, I was working as a door-to-door salesman for World Book Encyclopedia. And I was actually doing well. So 18 years old, I'm, I'm going door-to-door selling World Book Encyclopedia, feeling really good. My sales are beginning to increase. And just a few months into my job, I was paid every other week. I got a check in the mail of my commission, and the check was for over $1,000. That may not seem much to you now, but at that time, whew, that was a lot of money for a kid who grew up in relative poverty. When I saw the check, it did something to me. I actually didn't cash it. I carried it with me. It was a prize. It was a trophy. I showed it to as many people as I could. I I began to actually say, look at what I was able to accomplish. And I found something profoundly beginning to happen, even at the age of 18, in my heart. I was actually beginning to fall in love with the idea of becoming wealthy. I actually liked that idea. It felt good to me. Looking back on the story, I, now I can connect two really important dots. First of all, I can connect the dot between me and my dad. 
And that dot was pretty significant because I saw what I was carrying, which was a sin of the generation before me into my generation. The love that my father had, somehow even growing up the way that I did, became something that I wanted. I didn't want to live that way. I wanted to live more like my dad. That felt like a good way to live. And yet I saw, as I got older, where it led my father. His insatiable desire for wealth led him down a dark, lonely road that ended in tremendous tragedy for him and for us. The second dot I was able to connect is the dot between me and God. Because God had already been prompting me and calling me to ministry. I had already been feeling the nudge of the Holy Spirit that he wanted me to devote my life to the work of his kingdom. And I remember the inner struggle. Because I knew it meant I wasn't going to get rich. And I knew that there had to be a point in which I was willing to surrender and I was willing to give something up and I was willing to say, I don't want to serve two masters. I can only serve one. And I had to give my heart. I had to become all in for the work of God's kingdom no matter the cost, no matter what that meant for me. You see, I think what Jesus here is trying to tell us is don't become deceived into believing that your economic security will also guarantee you eternal security. I think the second message that Jesus is giving us in this parable and in this story is this. Enough is never enough. Enough is never enough. Did you happen to see how many times when we read the parable uh, that the words I... Me and myself showed up from this man. That's okay. I already counted them for you. Twelve times in three verses, this guy says, I, me, myself. Throughout the scripture, the Bible actually talks about greed and personifies it as a God. It's one of the few things in scripture that is ever characterized and personified as a God. And what the Bible actually teaches us about greed is that greed is speaking to us a message all of the time. And the message that greed is speaking to us is you can trust in me. You can trust in me. In fact, you can depend more on me than you can pretend to depend on God. And I have found that there are two primary messages that greed is speaking to us all of the time. Here's the first one. I deserve it. That's the first message of greed. I deserve it. What greed actually says is this. If I can just get a little bit more, then I'll be satisfied. How many of you know that is a bunch of garbage? Because you've learned, just like I have, that what happens in life is that we think the more and more we get, the more and more satisfied we will be. It's quite the opposite. In life, actually, the more and more we get, the less and less we are satisfied. There's actually a scientific explanation and a scientific term for this. And the scientific term is hedonistic adaptation which simply says this, hedonistic adaptation says 
that what satisfied me yesterday will satisfy me less today and even less tomorrow. What satisfied me yesterday will satisfy me less today and even less tomorrow. It's why people are walking out of marriages. Because what satisfied them yesterday satisfies sometimes less today and then even less tomorrow. And so this idea of enough is, is enough is simply not true. The message that, that greed speaks to us is, I deserve it. Here's the second message it speaks. It's all mine. It's all mine. Now, you already know, especially if you've been in our series thus far, that the Bible suggests very clearly that everything we have belongs to God. There is nothing that we possess here. In this. God's money, God's way, that view of Scripture is that everything we have, the shirt on my body today, the clothes I'm wearing, the food that I'm going to enjoy this afternoon, my wife, my kids, my resources, it's all God's. In fact, can I tell you this morning, you will breathe an estimated 23,000 breaths today alone. None of them belong to you. Every single one of them are God's. And you know what I've learned? I've learned that every day I've got 23,000 reasons to give thanks to God. Because every single breath I take is a gift from God. Enough, according to greed, is never enough. Here's the third message that Jesus is giving us in the parable. Bigger is not necessarily better. Bigger is not necessarily better. We live in a culture today, friends, where everybody tends to believe that bigger is always better, right? So, bigger salaries, bigger houses, uh, bigger responsibilities, that's always a better thing. In my world, in my context, it looks something like this. Bigger budgets, bigger staff, bigger congregation. When, when I go to pastoral meetings, you know one of the first questions I often get asked? How are things going in your church? And then they'll often follow it up with this. How many people are you running these days? Because that to us has become the metric. And we tend to believe, and I believed it, and I bought the lie, and I swallowed the hook for several years in ministry, that I believe that bigger was always better. And I have learned, friends, that it's not the case. And that's what Jesus is saying. So here's the question this, this parable begs us. The question it begs is this. What was wrong with the guy wanting to build bigger? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Jesus had absolutely no contention with this guy's desire to actually build something bigger, to actually grow his business. There was nothing wrong with that. Where Jesus contended was not the square footage of his building, but his skewed view of his wealth. Jesus here is not talking about how large your building is, how big your organization is. He's talking about how skewed and how deceived we become to believe that somehow our wealth acquisition 
can make our lives comfortable. Because this guy had a perspective that was earthly, he could not see eternity. He lived for the here and now, not the then and there. And Jesus had one more thing to say to him in the parable. Verse number 21. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. That was the core issue. The core issue with this guy was that he was not rich in his relationship with God. And we're going to talk about that more next weekend. But as we close this morning, I want to just give you one cue, one insight, one tip into what it looks like and how we can live being rich in our relationship with God here on this earth. Proverbs chapter 3 actually says this. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the best part of everything you produce. Then, here's here's what happens. This is the result. Consequently, he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. This guy wanted to build bigger because he thought, I can fill them with what I'm producing. But he forgot a principle. And he forgot one of the most important principles. And one of the most important principles is this, that this guy lacked something that so many of us lack in life. Let me close this morning by saying to you what I firmly believe. Contentment is the cure to greed. Contentment is the cure to greed. This guy was not content. He was not satisfied. And I think one of the greatest challenges in all of our life as followers of Jesus Christ is to have the mindset and come to the place in our life where we choose contentment. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I have been in ministry for over 30 years. I have lived this in my own family. I've watched this and I've watched this in other people's lives. We just simply have a tough time loving both God and loving our wealth at the same time. It is impossible. And I think until we become content with what God has provided for us, we are not going to overcome the temptation to have more. Paul added these words, and stand with me as I read it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I love this posture. Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. We can trust God. That God will not only give us what we need, but God will also give us what he can trust us to steward. And we can have confidence that God already knows how we'll handle it. So I'm asking you to pray with me this morning. And as we do, let's just submit our hearts to the Lord. Let's submit our life to God. You say, how do I honor God with my wealth? Let me give you three simple ways as I pray. Put God first, love God best, and give God your first and best. Put God first, love God best, and give God your first and your best. If we do this, God will take care of everything else. Father in heaven, thank you for the supply, the rich, vast supply of your grace in our lives. We are so thankful for all that you have done, God, to give us everything we have. Everything we are is a gift from you. And even as I'm praying right now, I'm breathing. And every breath is a gift. So I return it to you with thanksgiving. And I pray throughout this day, the 23,000 breaths that we breathe, that we'll be reminded that they do not belong to us. That they, along with everything we have, including all of our wealth, is yours. So may we put you first. May we love you best, and may we give you our first and our best, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for being here today. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.